Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Dr. William Hoy is an educator and counselor specializing in death, bereavement, and end-of-life issues. For nearly 25 years, Dr. Hoy has counseled bereaved individuals and families, and over the last several years has been primarily involved in writing and continuing education workshops for caregiving professionals. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Heidi, Gloria. Thank you. Nice to be with you. It's nice to be with you. You're down in Texas, right? That's right. So, Bill, I want to talk to you about um, about Christmas time. I know you talk a little bit about rituals, and, and I wonder why are rituals important? Well, I think uh, rituals are important primarily because they help us put feet to our grief. Uh, they help us to act out what we cannot speak out. Uh, they help us to um, literally to walk through uh, some kind of, uh, observance that acknowledges that yes, death occurred, my life has been changed, uh, but, but they also have a powerful healing, uh, aspect to them because they help us to look forward and, and they bring the entire community around us to support and to testify to the, no- to the notion that, uh, yes, you will get through this. Yes, there is life, uh, radically changed life, but life uh, goes, does go on. And there's a lot of ritual around our holiday, you know, just our own little family ritual. Sometimes it's kind of hard to give those up, isn't it, or to change them? I mean, it's got to change if you lost a mom or a dad or a sibling or a, a spouse. Your rituals aren't going to be the same. Well, you know, Heidi and Gloria, what I find is that grieving people uh, tend to, to uh, camp out on one polar extreme or the other. On one extreme, we have the the individual or the family who says, "You know what? We're we're going to we're not going to change a thing. We're going to keep everything just like it was when Dad was here." Uh, only problem with that, of course, is Dad is not here, and rituals that included the person who is no longer uh, here, present physically with us, um, can be a very very sad time if we just go on pretending that nothing has happened. The other extreme that I find grieving people and families do sometimes is say, you know what, uh, we're not going to do Christmas this year. We're not going to do Thanksgiving. We're not going to do Hanukkah. Whatever the whatever the key uh, holiday ritual that first time through, especially is, we're going to fly off to Aspen and ski for the week, or we're going to, you know, we're going to get out of Dodge. We're going to do something entirely different. And the problem with that, of course, is we leave the familiar behind thinking maybe we'll leave the memories, but in fact we don't. All we leave behind is the familiar rituals, and now we are grieving, but in a very unfamiliar place, perhaps not even surrounded by the people that we love and care about. And it turns out usually not to be a real happy experience either. That's interesting. I guess that's why, um, you know, when Scott was killed uh, in 1983, I... Um, you know, I was in the field of, uh, I was a clinical nurse specialist working at a hospital with uh, grief and loss, and uh, one of the things that stuck in my mind was do the same thing you always do this year. And, and Heidi, what do you remember about that first Christmas? 
I don't remember anything. I remember very little, but I do remember us thinking we're going to do the same thing and feeling extremely frustrated because Scott was the one that always put up the Christmas tree. He, that was his job. He was the only boy. He was a strapping, big, you know, 17-year-old kid. And we all had to try to put it up and put the lights on. And I remember feeling extremely frustrated because that was his role. That was his job. Who is going to step into that role now? You know, as a, as another sibling in 1983, as you as you looked around at, at the experience, and it, who's going to do this now? This very important job is not going to get filled. And who wants to fill it, in fact? So it becomes a very dicey proposition, I think, for families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I work with a, a 9-11 family that lost their father in the World Trade Center, and he was a firefighter, and he kind of was a very, you know, on-hands person. And the first year, I mean, they talk about how they were going to continue the same rituals, and they didn't know how to put up the lights. You know, they were trying to put up the tree, and it kept falling down, and they finally just gave up and just fell to the ground and just cried and were and thought, you know what, this is overwhelming. We can't do it this year. So it's it's really tough. I don't know, Mom. And so what did they end up doing, do you know? They had to go outside of their home and get some other firefighters to come in and take over and basically set the tree up and put out the outdoor lights and, and help them. Uh that's a fab that's a fabulous ending to it. Uh isn't it, Bill? You know, that, that's an amazing story, I think, uh, because in, in my research, what I've looked at is how different cultural groups ritualize death, whether that's, uh, uh the funeral itself or a, a deathbed kind of ritual or holiday and, and anniversary observances down the road. And, and one of the key things that is true virtually around the world and as far back into antiquity as we can find any records about how people ritualize death. And that is that the bereaved, that the, uh, the individual mourner and even what we in Western, in the Western world kind of see as the key mourners, the immediate family, those people were never uh, allowed to grieve by themselves. Uh, there's no such thing as an individual ritual uh, the world around. Ritual always involves gathered community, and and I think that's exactly what that family did. And, and one of the things I've observed in my work, uh, especially growing out of 9/11, but but uh, you know with fire service, especially wherever I've been, the the brotherhood, the community, if you will, of firefighters who work on one another's homes and do all different kinds of things on their days off. Um, those those uh, men and women come come together in an incredible way and do those very things, those kind of community-building kinds of things to support the family. And the funny thing is communities grieve, too. A firefighter, uh, when one of his comrades falls, he grieves terribly also. And, and and I think we overlook that, but but the fact that, he is able to step in with his with his brother firefighters and put up the Christmas tree and hang the lights on the outside of the house and do some of those kinds of things. I think what happens there is is that he is allowed to mourn by acting out his own grief too, and it, it becomes this wonderful healing ritual for everybody, for family. And, and what a great way, Mom, for men to be able to grieve by doing things because we've often done shows, though, with men and they like to be involved yeah. in, in doing things and activities. Ab- yeah, absolutely. This and, and the wonderful me. work that yeah. the, the wonderful work that Terry Martin and Ken Doka did on 
um, different gender styles in grieving in which they talked about instrumental grievers that, uh, that typify so many men, myself included. We, we want to, we want to do something through our grief. Don't ask us to sit around and talk about it. Don't ask us to sit around and cry about it. Don't ask us to sit around and share our feelings. We will do all of those things, but we will do it by taking action, by getting involved in things. And, and that's Absolutely. It reminds me of, uh, of just this uh, last week. I had some people staying at my house, and their son was having open-heart surgery at Stanford. And very serious, they had to put him on a heart-lung machine and all that kind of thing. And, and after the surgery, you know, the father was depleted and actually passed out in the room at one time. And they were staying at my house. And uh, about a couple of days later, the boy was feeling better. And uh, I uh, went out and got a Christmas tree, and he put all the lights on and everything for me. And, you know, it was so amazing because I knew he was exhausted, but, you know, he really he really got into the activity. And the end of that story is very good. The, the kid recovered, and he's gone home and this surgery was very successful but but seeing a man in grief and scared and everything and and having him come in and put up that tree was was pretty wonderful yeah yeah so i wanted to ask you a little bit about music because that's one of the rituals that's pretty powerful during the holidays isn't it mm-hmm. you know it, it really is um again music because it it so deeply touches the soul, um, the, and I don't understand exactly scientifically how it is that that happens. But but music music creates this bridge for us of symbol and memory and and all of these pieces kind of wrapped together. And then we put holiday music to that. And these these particular tunes that we only hear at this time of the year. So for a for a bereaved family, for a bereaved individual who is thinking to him or herself, gee, I, you know, I think I'm doing pretty well. You know, it's been eight months now. I'm, I'm kind of getting along okay with this, and, and I think I'm going to be all right. And then we walk into the shopping mall or the bank or anywhere or hear on the radio this, this, you know, Bing Crosby singing White Christmas or something that brings back this flood of memories of the, of the places we've shared, the times we've been together. And all of a sudden now, uh, we're, we're right back in the, the heart of, of that grief. Um, so music is profound, and again, trying to escape it, get away from it, doesn't work. What does work is to stop and say, wow, this, this song brings back a flood of memories. What are some of those things I remember most? What, are the, what were the good times, the bad times? What does this conjure up for me? It's a great time to journal, to talk with other family members or friends or a bereavement support group about how the music impacts me this time of year. Yeah, and you can actually use music. We've talked about this before. You can make yourself a sad CD or a happy CD. I mean, sometimes uh, our friend Eric Hippel, who was quarterback for the Detroit Lions, used to light a candle and in the evening so he could compartmentalize his grief a little bit and cry and whatever, and, and you can make some sad music and, and spend some time with your grief if if that's what you choose to do. you have any comments about that, Hyde? Um just that you can also, like you said, make a happy CD if you need to take a break from your grief. And that it's, like Bill was saying, it's so hard to get away from music right now because, I mean, you go into the pharmacy even to buy a tube of toothpaste and there's music always being piped in. So wherever you go in your life, there is music. And so much music is about um, having having loved and lost. 
There's those themes in a lot of music. So trying to figure out how we're going to deal with that when it happens. Sometimes it happens when you're least expecting it. You'll hear a song that triggers a a very deep memory. Why don't you comment on whatever you'd like people to know about you? Oh, sure. Well, you can always find me on our website, which is griefconnect.com. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T? That's it, yeah, griefconnect, all spelled together, dot com. And uh, that will take you right to us. Um, I have written a couple of books. I have a third one in process that will be out in the spring. Uh, the one that is still to come is called A Caring Life, and it's a um, retrospective on 25 years doing this work. But more than that, uh, how do you keep your sanity when you're caring for uh, people with death and end of life and grief issues as a career? And so it's a taking care of yourself kind of book for caregivers. Uh, the two books that are in press now available on our website, on Amazon, bookstores, things like that. One of them is called um, Road to Emmaus. It's a pastoral care uh, book on dealing with bereavement and end-of-life issues uh, in the parish or congregational ministry. The other one is called Guiding People Through Grief, and it's a how-to for developing support groups for bereaved people. All right. Well, that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the support group one because I know it's great for people who want to run support groups, but tell me about me. I am bereaved, say, this year or last year, and I want a support group, or, or I want my husband to go to one, or I want my brother or sister. I had somebody call me from Florida uh, yesterday who's um, uh, father-in-law had uh, killed himself, uh, suicide, and she was looking for a support group for her husband, and she didn't want to pay for it. Um, what are your thoughts on support groups? How do you find them? Do you need them? Uh, should we be trying to find them for other people? Should they find their own? I mean, what are your thoughts on support groups? Great, great question. You know, I, I think the only people that go to support groups are people who want to go to support groups. Uh, certainly there are some folks who are dragged there by a spouse and they go once and then they find excuses not to go back if it doesn't do something for them. Um, not everybody needs a bereavement support group. My own mother, um, after my dad died in 1993, was uh, at first humored me and then just kind of resolutely refused to attend a support group. Months after her death, I found out that every Sunday after church, She had lunch with this little group of ladies, um, all of whom uh, were widowed. And though I doubt they sat around all afternoon and talked about their dead husbands, it became for her a very important community. And so all the time I was trying to get her in a bereavement support group, she was in a whole lot better one than I could ever have created for anyway. (laughs) And so I, I think it's important that everybody has support. Grief is not done well when it is done alone. So that's the key. What kind, what's, the, what's the measure of the support that I have in my life? If, if my family doesn't feel all that supportive or, frankly, they're just sick and tired of hearing me all the time talk about uh, what's going on with me, then that's a good clue that a support group could be really helpful. Um, you know, there, there are a couple of different models. One would be the, the professionally-led support group led by a therapist, one of us, uh, a professional who does this kind of work day in and day out. Uh, the other, though, is a peer-led support group like the Compassionate Friends and some of those kinds of national movements. Um, I, I think it's helpful to Google. Uh, you can certainly call a hospice in your area. That's a great place to start. Uh, ask the bereavement coordinator at the hospice. 
if uh, the funeral home that took care of your loved one uh, has anybody dealing with aftercare or that sort of thing, it's a great place to look for support groups. Might be your faith community would have one. Uh, some people want to be involved in a group within their faith community. Some would prefer to go outside. That's a personal a personal decision. I think what you're looking for, though, in a bereavement support group is an opportunity to tell your story, an opportunity for other people to listen, for your experience to be kind of normalized, and for uh, for you to realize as you leave there, wow, I'm not losing my mind after all, even though I sure feel like it most of the time. And that's what a grief support group, I think, does best, is it gives us that sense of camaraderie that we are not in this by ourselves. Well, you know, I'm thinking with a husband and wife, um, maybe the spouse doesn't want the other spouse to be at the group. I mean, they may well, have some angst that they want to talk about. You know, in, in my experience leading groups, I found a, a kind of a mixed bag, but I have rarely seen couples who both attended the same group long term. Usually they find their own groups. Um, often the guy doesn't participate anyway if he's an instrumental griever, like I was talking about earlier. He, he may not be all that interested in the group in the first place. Um, sometimes men will come uh, in support of their wives. Again, the Compassionate Friends and Bereaved Parents USA, I think, are exceptions to that rule. I see a lot of men uh, that participate in those groups, depending on where in the country you might be. But, but I think it's really, uh, it's a, it's an important question to ask each other as a, as a bereaved couple. You know, do we want our own group? Would we prefer to, to uh, go to separate groups or one of us go to a group and one talk to a therapist or, you know, maybe, maybe go to the same group? But, but I think it's a great question to ask each other and not be offended at the other's answer. Absolutely. Uh, Heidi, have you got any thoughts on group? Just that overall, I think, we do definitely see women that are more kind of group-oriented, and men seem to me be more task-oriented. And also, you said this before, Mom, if you want men to feel comfortable in a group, give them a task. Let's, right. Can you help me set up the chairs? Can you help me serve the food or whatever? Give them something to do. Yeah, Which well, I one think of our guests. exactly why it's worked for compassionate friends and some of those groups, because mm-hmm. that's exactly what they do. Everybody's got a job. Right. Um, one of our guests, I think it was Tom Golden, said, I like this comment that um, men grieve shoulder to shoulder and women grieve face to face. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which reminded me of uh, when we were talking about music. When you stand shoulder to shoulder with people and sing, it, it can be pretty powerful. But I remember it was pretty painful to go to church at first and, and stand shoulder to shoulder and, and sing those songs. Well, I wanted to um, ask you, what if family, we're during the holiday season, um, we've only got a couple of more minutes, and I wondered if you could give us um, some thoughts about uh, different rituals that might be helpful. My favorite story from a lady that uh, worked with in a group several years ago, she um, she lit a candle in on the dining room table. I think it was Thanksgiving, but it would work for any holiday. Uh, she lit a candle as the family gathered around the table. It was their tradition to all stand around the table before they went through kind of the buffet line and then came to take their place. And uh, anyway, so they, they stood around the table, and she said, you know, I've just lit this candle in the middle of the table, and I'm lighting it in memory of um, of Dad, which was her husband. And and she said, you know, I know it's inevitable that all of us are thinking about this is the first holiday that he's not here, and I didn't want us just to pretend that he uh, was not here and just go on, because all of us are thinking that. And so today, would you do me a favor? While we're here at the table, I'd really like 
if all of us would find a place, find a way to tell our favorite bad story. And she said, now probably we're going to cry, and I, but you'll be happy to know I'm prepared for that. So she reaches down and picks up the plate right in front of her, and underneath it, she had put under every place setting one of those little private packages of Kleenex. And she said, <laughs> so you see, I'm ready. Well, that broke the ice. Everybody laughed. She told us at group the next week, she said, you know, it was the most amazing thing. Usually 30 minutes into the meal, the guys are headed into the living room to watch football. The women are cleaning up the kitchen. She said, we sat at the table from a little before noon until after 3 o'clock just telling stories. And she said it was the most meaningful holiday that we have ever had as a family. I think what it takes for us to do something meaningful is to say, you know what, this is not like it used to be, and it's not, and I'm not like I'm going to be, but we're going to do something different this year that preserves the, the memory of the person that we have said goodbye to, we're going to do something to remember them. So light a candle, put a poinsettia in the church, do a, um, you know, put up a, a Christmas tree at the cemetery if you'd like, hang a special ornament on the tree, or let all of the grandchildren decorate a, an ornament for the tree. Do anything that gets, that gets the entire group involved, and you'll find that those kind of rituals make the holiday much richer. Uh, thank you, Bill Hoy, for being on our show today. It's been absolutely thank wonderful you. having you on, and we hope you have a meaningful holiday. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.